Here at Christ the King Church, we are building up God's people by the ordinary means of grace. We are rooting our Christian practices in historic Reformed faith and preparing our covenant children in the Lord to be the continuing church. And in this season of our church life, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. And as I mentioned towards the end of my uh, my sermon, which I know at that point some of you had already kind of glazed over. It went a little long, I know. Uh, but I mentioned that it would probably be a good idea for us to do a deep dive into Jesus' command uh, to forgive. Right? He kind of closed out with the fact that Jesus has given us uh, the command to exercise faith. And part of that exercise of faith is that as we pray, we would be forgiving those that we have something against. And so uh, today we're going to be reading Psalm 130, and then we're going to be reading Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 25, and we're going to focus today's sermon on just verse 25. But before we read the, the Holy Scriptures, I'm going to pray for us once again. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we turn now to your word in the name of Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. Our souls cleave to the dust, so revive us according to your word. Teach us your statutes, make us to understand the way of your precepts so that we will meditate on your wonders. Strengthen us according to your word, remove the false ways from us, and graciously grant us your law. Lord, we have chosen the faithful way, we have placed your ordinances before us, and we cling to your testimonies. Father, do not put us to shame, for we run to your commandments. We run to the gospel this morning, because you increase our hearts by the power of your word. Amen. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's holy and errant and life-giving word, starting in Psalm 130. <clears throat> Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we turn over to Mark chapter 11. Read verses 20 through 25. We just read them last week, so they'll be a little bit more familiar to us. But starting in verse 20. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea... And does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted you. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You can be seated. <clears throat> the consistent logic of the New Testament is this. God has forgiven us, and therefore, we must forgive others. N not should, but must. What we have here in verse 25 
is an imperative from our king. I mentioned last week that that phrase in verse 22 from Jesus, have faith in God, that's an imperative. Well, again, here in verse 25, when Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, forgive, that word forgive here in this passage is once again in the imperative form. This is not a suggestion. It's not a uh, a, it's not pious advice. It's not his best practice and recommendation. It's a command. The, the big idea of this passage, and for those of you who are newer with us, those of you that are visiting, we every Sunday I try to give a big idea so that everybody can leave on the same page about what the sermon was about. We're commanded by the king to forgive. That's the big idea. We are commanded by our Lord Jesus to forgive. Forgiveness is an indispensable aspect of the exercise of our faith as commanded by Christ. And as we all know all too well, we get lots of opportunities, don't we? In this life, in this fallen world, we get tons of opportunities to forgive other people, right? We've been forgiven much as fallen sinful people who are loved by God. And as we live in a fallen and sinful world, we have much to forgive others as they sin against us. The application is very simple this morning. We must forgive others. We've been commanded by the king to forgive, and so therefore we must forgive others. Now, one of my professors from seminary once wrote in a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, faithful disciples have questions about forgiveness. So if you hear Jesus' command to forgive and you're like, Pastor Nate, I've made a questions. I've got lots of questions about how exactly this whole forgiveness thing works, that doesn't make you a bad Christian. That's just a reasonable thing for faithful disciples to do. And that's actually modeled for us by the Apostle Peter, as we'll see in another passage that I'll mention here shortly. But, but what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to throw out some various questions, some rhetorical questions. You're not meant to answer them out loud as I ask them. I'm going to do that. But I'm going to ask some questions, and I'm going to answer them this morning. The first question is this. This is what we have to start with. What is forgiveness? What are we being told to do here? And if you're honest, some of you are like me and you're wondering, what am I not required to do? Like, what what am I not being told to do in this passage, right? Well, the Greek word used in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, and in Matthew 6, 12, 14, and 15, and in Matthew 18, 35, means to send away, to let go, to cancel, to release, to forgive. So forgiving is releasing, you might say. It's to let go of something that you have against someone. Do you see that language of Jesus in verse 25? Forgive if you have something against someone. So you kind of imagine you have like a physical, like some sort of like a brick or a rock. You have, or maybe your fist against someone's chest. You have it against them. And he's saying, let go. Let it go. Re- release them. Now, forgiving Being releasing does not mean that it is the restoration of trust or reconciling. Those are three R's I want you to have differentiated in your mind. There's releasing, there's reconciling, and then there's restoring trust. A lot of people think, I can't forgive this person because I can't restore them to trust. I can't trust them again. Well, that's okay if you can't trust them again on on that particular topic of, of the offense because that's not what you're being required to do here. Like, so here's going to be my controlling analogy. Sorry, Daniel, you're getting picked on. Let's say Daniel borrowed my car, right, and he wrecked it, or Joseph, right? They wanted to drag race the Mazdas and see which one was fastest, right? 
And I let Daniel borrow my car. He promised to be super duper safe with it. And he wasn't. He didn't. This is hypothetical. It's not real. I can release him. I can forgive him. But that doesn't mean I'm going to lend him the car tomorrow. Right? Does that make sense? Right? Some of you adult men in the room, like your dad let you the truck when you were a kid. Right? And it didn't go well. Maybe. Right? And he forgave you. But you didn't get the keys to the truck when it got back from the shop, did you? Right? So there's a difference. So a lot of people get hung up here because they falsely equate releasing someone, that personal offense, like letting go of it, they falsely equate that with full restoration of trust. They're not the same. Okay? So releasing something that you have against someone uh, comes before reconciling and restoring. Reconciling and restoring trust are what can follow. Right? And I think it's important, though, to distinguish here between the personal, the ecclesial, and the civil and material aspects of sinful offenses, right? It's possible for someone to personally forgive, to release a fellow Christian of an offense against them, but the offender can still be held accountable by civil authorities or the church elders for their sin. Here's an example from a fellow pastor who's in a different denomination, but this is what he, this is what he said. Uh, I once had a former congregant who accused me of sinning against him by not forgiving him. And his grounds for such a claim were that the session of his church was still pursuing ecclesial action against him and his wife was suing him in civil court. So I told him that while I had forgiven him and would continue to practice forgiveness, that there were still civil and ecclesial consequences for his sin. Right, so what that guy was doing in his mind is he was falsely equating releasing with full restoration of trust and no consequences for his actions. Right? So someone might personally be able to forgive you for sin. Right? But the civil magistrates say, that's real great, but we still have to take you to jail for what you did. We can't let you off the hook for this. Does that make sense? There's different aspects. Sin gets things messy. People want to make forgiveness super simple. But the reality is, is that forgiveness comes after sin, and sin complicates everything. Right? Where there is sin, things get far more complex. Okay? Here's the second question. Because I mentioned that releasing someone and reconciling are different. So the natural question that comes is this. Do I or can I forgive someone before they ask for it? Does forgiveness require the offending party to ask for it first? And there's two predominant views. And if I were to show you the various names, theologians and authors and pastors who are on both sides, it's a lot. There's a lot of big names in both camps. Okay, so I'm not going to name drop anywhere. Right? Both of them make their arguments from Scripture. There's the transactional view, sometimes called the conditional view. And then there's the unilateral, freely forgiving view, sometimes called the lavish view, right? So in the transactional, conditional view, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to stand ready to forgive, and once the offender asks for it, then we forgive them, right? And the logic goes like this. Look, God doesn't forgive people unless they repent of their sins and seek his forgiveness, so why should we, right? But our posture and desire is that we are willing. We're excited and ready to forgive once they just come and confess their sins. The unilateral, freely forgiving view is this. We forgive people regardless of whether or not they ever come to ask for it. There's no trans uh, transaction required, right? 
my personal view, when I first had to study those views, I was uh, taking a biblical conflict resolution class about 18 months ago, and I had to absorb both of those views, and I just, there was something off about both of them, in my opinion. I thought, okay, there's, there's something missing here, and so I have a, a modified version of the unilateral view, okay? So the unilateral view is the freely forgiving view, uh, but I do believe that there's a transactional, conditional component to forgiveness, it's more nuanced than either one of those views. I think there's an internal and an external component to forgiveness, or as one author puts it, subjective and objective. It took me 18 months uh, to stumble across, by God's providence, uh, a, a theologian's articulation of forgiveness. That it, I, I was, He was finally able to help me put my, my thumb on what I was thinking, right? You ever have like an intuition, like something's off here, but I can't really put words to it, and then you find the words for it. Well, that's what happened to me this past week as I was uh, reading something by one of my uh, seminary professors, Dr. Dan Doriani. He said this, Forgiveness is complex. Jesus offers forgiveness freely, yet forgiveness comes with a cost and a condition. Ideally, the sinner repents, and the offended party freely forgives. But what if the sin sinner refuses to repent? Even if the offended party forgives in his heart, the matter is not closed. So, Jesus sometimes says forgive, period, full stop. And sometimes he says forgive if the sinner repents. We harmonize these commands by distinguishing subjective and objective elements of forgiveness. We forgive an offender subjectively, that is, he says in parentheses there, inwardly, by loving him, praying for him, seeking peace with him. But to complete the objective aspect of forgiveness, the sinner must repent. Even after one forgives inwardly, he may ask a sinner to repent. So Doriani uses the language of subjective and objective rather than in, and inward and outward. Ken Sandy in his book uses transactional and positional. Right? Both of those men are acknowledging that there's not just one aspect to forgiveness. Because you have all these different passages in the New Testament where Jesus teaches on forgiveness, and he seems to be talking about it with, from two different perspectives, from two different aspects. And I think the best explanation of that is objective and subjective, outward and inward. And what's being commanded here today is inward. What is the person in Jesus' scenario here? What is the person doing when he's being told to forgive? Is he having a conversation with the person that's offending him? No, he's having a conversation with God. What Jesus is commanding of us as Christians is that as you're praying, it's a conversation between you and God, right? If you've got anything against anyone else who you're not praying to, who's not involved in this prayer here, you release them of it. That's the command. This is inward. The outward comes later because even after you forgive them, you might need to go to that person and, and confront them on their, their sins, they might not even be aware at all that they've offended you. So you can release that person. You can forgive them in the inward, subjective sense. There's still more work to be done. So that, does that make sense? Right? That gives you kind of a balanced, harmonized understanding of how forgiveness works from the Gospels. There could be no question for those who read the Bible that Jesus wants us to forgive others. And I think the passage that we're dealing with today is just dealing with the inward, not the outward aspect, right? Jesus doesn't seem in this scenario to be discussing forgiveness as if someone has come to seek it first, okay? Question three, 
How much forgiveness do I have to extend to someone? How long-suffering do I have to be with someone who sins against God? So Matthew 18 is commonly known as, as the, the passage of Scripture uh, that, where we learn about how to uh, go to someone who's in sin, right? It's the church discipline chapter. Well, the logic of Matthew 18 kind of it flows in a very interesting way. Jesus uh, gives you this parable about uh, this shepherd who goes out, leaves the 99 sheep to find the one, right? Leaves the 99 to find the one that's straight away. And then he goes into the instruction on church discipline. And then he gives this parable after Peter asks this question. He gives this parable all about his view of forgiveness. And it's Peter who comes and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And what is Jesus' famous response? Not seven times, Peter, but 70 times seven. And if you read the ESV, it says 77. Look, that doesn't really matter. Whether the ESV is right and it's 77 or the New American Standard and the KJV is right, and it's 70 times 7, that's a whole bunch of times. Jesus isn't giving a literal number. He's not saying, Peter, your punch card is too small. You need to have 77 punches on that punch card so that when Peter gets to 76, okay, this person offended me 76 times, they've got one more punch, and then I don't have to, I don't have to forgive them. That's not what Jesus is saying. So people quibble over the translation. It's like, guys, not the point. It's just the point has done this, flown right over their heads, okay? Jesus isn't giving a literal number to stick to rigorously. He's saying there's no limit on your forgiveness. How much have you been forgiven, Peter? Seven times or 70 times seven? A lot. Unlimited, right? The point that Jesus is making is that we forgive and we forgive and we forgive. This is what the king does for us, and we reflect his kingship in the world by doing the same. Now, here's a pastoral inquiry. Right? Here's just a question that I have for you. Right? Don't answer this out loud, but just think about it. Okay? If someone sinned against you 77 times or 490 times in the exact same way and never altered their behavior, at what point do you start questioning the sincerity of their repentance? Because they keep coming and saying, look, I, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And you're supposed to forgive them. But at some point, right? Like, Jesus is, is a rational person. Jesus questioned the sincerity of people when they would say things. And he challenged the sincerity of people like the rich young rulers. Like, I've, I've kept the whole law, right? And in a roundabout way, he challenges his sincerity on those claims, right? So at what point would you go, hey, it, you know, like in six hours, you've come back to me every 90 seconds repenting, of the same thing. Are you, maybe you haven't repented of this. Like maybe you're not really sorrowful over your sin, right? At some point you would. Here's question number four. Pastor Nate, do I really, really have to? <laughs> like for, when it comes to forgiveness, do I really, really have to? Yes. It's interesting, the parable that Jesus gives after Peter asks that question. And by the way, it's in this particular chapter. I mentioned this chapter earlier. You know, whenever, uh, you know, whenever Peter asks this question, Jesus begins to command that we release people of what we have against them. It's the same Greek word that he uses in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, right? 
he tells this really interesting parable. It's really in your face. Some of you uh, millennials, you might remember this parable from the 90s because this parable found its way on, kids, we used to have these plastic bricks called VHS tapes, and this parable was in animated format, right? I don't, I don't, I don't remember what production company did it, but this parable uh, uh, is, is simply this. There's a king and there's a slave, the New American Standard says, that owes him a sum of money. And in modern, if you took the, the poundage of silver that this was back in those days and you looked up the uh, today's silver prices, uh, this guy owes this king anywhere from 280 to $300 million. Now, that doesn't seem a lot uh, for a, a government today because we're trillions upon trillions of dollars in debt. Uh, uh, just don't, don't worry about that. Uh, but but so, so $300 million seems like chump change, right? In the time that I've been talking about money, like our government has already spent that, okay? So, but back in the day, that was a lot of money. And one commentary said this, this slave could have only racked up this much debt if he was in a position in the royal treasury and had either embezzled it or spent it in a really uh, unwise way without the king's, uh, king's authorization. So that's the kind of hot water that this guy is in. If you read between the lines there and you just kind of calculate the numbers. And he pleads with the king. He's like, don't throw me in debtor's prison. Like, don't. Don't, like, you know, punish me and my family. So please forgive me. And it says the king is moved to pity, to compassion on this servant. And he says, I release you. I forgive you of this debt. What does that guy go out and do? He immediately goes out. And it, it, depending on how you translate the Greek, he either hunts this dude down or he stumbles upon this servant that owes him money. He, he finds a fellow slave who owes him four months of day laborer's wages. Four months. The, the debt that he was forgiven, he could never pay off in 200 lifetimes. Like, if his, if his progeny uh, had to pay it off, they'd still be paying it off today, probably. But he finds the guy who owes him four months of day laborer's wages, and he grabs him, and the text says he chokes him, demands that he pays him back, and he throws him in debtor's prison. Well, some of the king's other slaves see this, and they let the king know about it, and the king is enraged by it. And what does the king say at the end of that, that, that parable? This is what he says. You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers, until he should repay all that was owed to him, which, by the way, is never, ever, ever in his life. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. There is an inward releasing. It is command. It is vital. It is vital. It's not just like, hey, life will be better if you would do this, although it absolutely will be. If you will quickly overlook offenses, if you will release what you're holding against people, you'll like life better. But that's not what Jesus incentivizes us here with. It's about eternity. I mean, do you see the parallel? The king throws someone in a torturous prison for the remainder of his life. This is a heaven-hell issue. This is an eternal destiny issue. So the answer to the question, do I really, really have to, is yes. Matthew 6, 14 through 15, 
Jesus says, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. I told you last week regarding the the gospel of Mark chapter 11 that verse 26 is not in the early manuscripts. Verse 26 says, if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. So it's not here in Mark, but those words, almost word for word, are elsewhere in the Gospels. Does that make sense? So verse 26 shouldn't be there, but that doctrine's found elsewhere, almost verbatim. I once overheard someone, I, I, my wife gives me a hard time. I don't know if it's a, a curse or a superpower, but I have the ability to get so focused on what I'm doing or reading that you have to physically touch me in order to snap me out of it. Like you can be talking to me from, from me to Ray, and I won't hear you. I'm not doing it on purpose. I don't, I don't have like a switch that I flip and I'm like super focused mode. That's not how it works. It just happens. On the other hand, I have like a spidey sense. I think it's like a pastoral spidey sense. I'll be out minding my own business, not trying to uh, eavesdrop, not trying to play Samwise Gamgee, uh, right? Like I'm just minding my own business and I'll hear people talk in coffee shops and the words they're using and things they're saying, I just all of a sudden hear it crystal clearly from across the room and I don't want to <laughs> most of the time, Okay. And I overheard this conversation between uh, two women once. And the one woman, she was not lamenting about this. She was not saying, this is a personality flaw, this is a sin, I really wish I wasn't this way. She was, she was I won't say she's boasting, but like almost, whatever that is. Where it's like you're not boasting, but you're getting real close when you're talking about yourself. And what she was describing is that when someone wrongs her or offends her, they're just on the dunzo list. Like we're done. There's no possibility of restoration of trust. There's no reconciling, right? There's going to be no release. I'm, I, I, don't for, I don't forgive and I never forget, right? Like I, that, was, that was what she was, was talking about. She's making these very black and white absolute claims and declarations that forgiveness was not going to happen. When you insult her, when you make criti- any sort of critical remarks, there's no turning back from that. So let me rephrase the question, Pastor Nate, do I really, really have to? Let's put some teeth on this. Can someone be a true born-again Christian with true faith in the Lord Jesus and also unrelentingly withhold forgiveness? No. I think that's the plain teaching of Scripture. I think that's the plain teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 11 and in that parable. We can't get away from that parable. The king comes to him and calls him a wicked slave. Not just, oh, shucks, man, you really blew it. You're wicked. He didn't really understand the king's mercy. He didn't really understand the great debt that he had been forgiven. By his nature, he wasn't reflecting the king. There was no real repentance in his heart. So he doesn't forgive others. I think that, that's, that has to be, as hard as that is, as difficult as that sounds, that has to be the conclusion that we come to as we just read the plain words of Scripture. Forgiveness is a reflection of what you believe. The ability to forgive others is a reflection of what you believe. Now, are there things, are there things that would be and feel nearly impossible to forgive? Absolutely. My heart breaks for those families who lost loved ones in Nashville at that at Covenant School just a few weeks ago. 
But even in that scenario, can you imagine? Can you imagine being commanded by Jesus to forgive in that circumstance? It'd be hard, wouldn't it? And yet it's commanded. It doesn't mean that that person, that, 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 that the shooter, that she doesn't get consequences. She did. But we can release them. We can let go of what we hold against them. As difficult as it might be, it might be a long process. It might be a hard daily endeavor, but we're commanded to forgive. Question number five, how can I know that I've forgiven someone? Because right, you, you want to forgive people. Like you want to do that, but it can be hard because there's no app for that, right? There's no like, you, know, you can't like go on your, like it's not like a FICO credit score where you have an app and it's like, all right, you're doing, you're doing well today. You're in the green. It's kind of lightish green today, so I mean, you're, you, know, you need to practice forgiveness a little bit more. Like, we don't have any sort of metric for this. So how? How can we check our own hearts? What questions can we ask of ourselves to check in on, on, on the status of our forgiveness, our releasing that person of their offense against us? Some really good texts that will help us. Matthew 6, 12, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Ephesians 4.32. And from those passages and other passages, here's, here's four things, four questions or four uh, statuses, if you will, that you can check in on. First is this. I'm not dwelling on the offense. I'm not dwelling on the offense. Ha- has someone ever done something uh, to you and they brought it up like five years later and you're like, I forgot all about it. That's a good sign that you're not dwelling on it because you forgot about it, right? Now, let's be honest. There are things that, are, that you can't forget. Uh, those, those dear Christians that lost children and spouses in the, in the covenant shooting, they will be reminded every single day for the rest of their life what the shooter did to their family. Every day. They're, they're not going to be able to forget that. We're not talking about forgetting we're talking about not dwelling on it. So, so here's what dwelling is. Don't raise your hands. But has someone ever cut you off in traffic and then you were lying in bed like that night or two nights later, gritting your teeth and just so upset about it? Guess what? You're dwelling on that. They're just, a, they're just late for work. Like it wasn't personal. They didn't go, oh, there's Nate. I'm going to get him now. That's not what happened. Right there, that's probably not what happened. I hope, I hope no one out there is like cutting people off in traffic for fun. If so, they need to repent, right? But if, if that kind of thing, right, it like, the, here, uh, like, here's one for me. Food Lion clearly says 12 items or less. Man, there's people that have 120 items, like, right? And I, I've had to learn, I just gotta let this go. This probably isn't purposeful. They're probably not paying attention. They're on their phone. They're just cruising through the store. They saw there was a person at checkout. They just went in. Don't dwell on that stuff, right? That's how you know you're dwelling on it. When you lose sleep over it, when you're trying to work and you can't because you start, you start ruminating on that, right? You're dwelling. So a good marker that you can tell that you've forgiven someone, you've released them of their offense against you, is that you're not dwelling on the offense, There's a difference between not dwelling on the offense and not being reminded every day about the consequences of the offense, okay? Second thing, I do not bring up the offense with that person and use it against that person. 
I do not bring up the offense with that person and use it against that person, right? You have a disagreement on the board uh, or, or, you know, or, or some sort of committee with someone. You know, hey, remember that time like 10 years ago uh, when you scratched my car? Do you remember that? you remember that time? Man, that was crazy. So what were we talking about again? Like you don't, you, don't, you, you don't bring it up to manipulate them into being on your side. Right? You don't bring it up in an argument with your spouse. Hey, remember that time 20 years ago at the very beginning of our marriage where we were both kind of knuckleheads? Uh, do you remember that thing that you did? Yeah, I definitely remember that thing that you did. Right? We don't use it against them. We don't bring it up. We don't bring it up to maliciously use it against them. Third thing, I do not unnecessarily discuss the offense. I do not unnecessarily discuss the offense this is refraining from gossip, right? I do not unnecessarily involve other people in or inform them of the offense. So let me explain. Going back, sorry, use you again, Daniel. You'll understand here in a second why I had to use you for this analogy. So Daniel wrecks my car. Joseph what was driving his car. He kind of you know, gets off scot-free. And, uh, and it's kind of doing this to Daniel. As, you know, Daniel's telling me what he did, right? Uh, no, Joseph never did that. But I ha- guess what? I, Jeff, his grandfather, Daniel's grandfather, is my insurance agent. I got to tell his granddad, not because it's his granddad, I'm trying to like, you know, bash Daniel to his granddad, but my insurance agent is going to wonder why my car is totaled and I wasn't driving it. I have to have that conversation. You, so, so that is an instance where I'd have to bring it up and it's necessary, right? If someone egregiously offends you and it's a, it's a matter of the peace and purity of the church, you have to tell the elders, right? Like, there, there's times where you have to talk about it with someone else, right? You can forgive a fellow Christian of a civil crime, and there's certain cases where you got to tell the magistrate. You legally have no choice. There is no, like, there's things where you could say, I'm not pressing charges. And then there's other instances where you don't have a choice. Those charges are getting pressed whether you like it or not, and you're going to have to talk about it. You see the difference? This is not, I just, nope, I'm not. I, I'm sorry, Mr. Magistrate, sir, I've forgiven this person. I'm not going to say a word, right? Like, you, that's, that's not what we're saying here. It's that you do not unnecessarily discuss the offense. If I had a different insurance agent, I don't got to tell Jeff what, what Daniel did in that scenario. Does that make sense? Right, everybody's tracking. I think you're with me. Fourth thing, fourth marker. Here's how you know. I do not desire for that offense to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. I know that I've forgiven this person of what they've done. If I do not desire for that offense to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship, I know I've forgiven that person because I'm not avoiding them at church or avoiding them in the office. I see that neighbor that offended me, and and they're walking their dog. I don't take a side street to avoid them, (laughs) right? Uh, I, I don't desire... I, I don't look at their offense and go, good, this gives me an excuse to not deal, have to deal with them anymore. That's not forgiveness. I'm not saying you got to be best friends. I'm not saying you got to put them in your will. It's not what we're talking about here. You just don't desire to use that offense as a, as a roadblock between them and you. These are the four kind of tests that you can do on your own heart to know whether or not you've forgiven that person. Bonus questions. We've got time. So this isn't in your notes. If you grab the notes from up there. What am I supposed to do, Pastor Nate? 
when someone isn't seeking forgiveness. I've forgiven them, right? This is about the inward aspect, but there's the outward aspect. What do I do? Matthew 18 tells you what to do. You go when you show them their fault. You go and you, should, you can go to them and say, look, I've already forgiven you of this. I'm not com- coming here to hold this against you, but you've sinned against me and other people. And this is a, a pattern of it has to be dealt with. And there's things to remember before you even go and show them their fault in the first place. The first is this. Remember the goal. The goal of this confrontation that you're having is to glorify God and to win the sinner back. It's to glorify God and to win the sinner back to a right estate with God and man. Secondly, get the log out of your own eye. Be, you need to know going into that confrontation what am I responsible for in this conflict? You should be prepared to make your own confession of sin to that person and seek their forgiveness. And gentleness. Gentleness is the tone of the encounter. Galatians 6 reminds us that as we seek to restore our brother or our sister, that we ought to be gentle. That's the spirit of this confrontation. It's not conflict-driven, It's driven by love for God, love for the person who offended you. And you come with a tone and a tenor of gentleness. This is forgiveness. This is how we do it. These are the processes. These are the, the checkpoints for our hearts. And Matthew Henry, commenting on Mark 11, verses 20 through 25, said this, It is by faith that the world is conquered. I'm going to read that one again. It is by faith that the world is conquered. Satan's fiery darts are quenched. A soul is crucified with Christ and yet lives. By faith, we set the Lord always before us. And we see him that is invisible and have him present to our minds. And this is effectual to remove mountains. For at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, the mountains were not only moved, but removed. To this is added that necessary qualification of the prevailing prayer that we freely forgive those who have been any way injurious to us and be in charity with all men. Church, our Lord Jesus is the conquering king. He is the Lord whose presence moves and removes mountains. His conquest is not by fleshy means. It's a conquest that comes by faith. And as we prevail, as we exercise faith, we pray. And Jesus has given a command to forgive so that as we pray, forgiveness is extended to others. Forgiveness is not an option in the conquest. Forgiveness is not an option or a suggestion. It's a command. There's this great story that, uh, that R.C. Sproul told. Uh, it happened to him in the 1980s. He was a pastor and a psychiatrist was opening a new practice, and he came to Dr. Sproul, and he said, I'll give you a $100,000 salary a year to come join my practice. And he said, well, I'm not a medical doctor. Uh, I can't prescribe people medication. I I don't have any experience in in doing what you do. And he said, RC, 90% of my patients don't need me to write them a prescription. 90% of them are racked with guilt, and they need to experience forgiveness. And you understand forgiveness. Church, the world is full of people who are racked. They're plagued by guilt. They have no idea how to get free. 
They have no idea where they can find hope. The church has an opportunity to display to the world the forgiveness of God and Christ that is available for those who believe. We live in a world that wants to cancel people who are guilty of crimes against them according to their own man-made godless standards. But we serve a God who wants to cancel the record of our guilt by forgiving us of our trespasses and sins against him. And he does so by the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is available. It is purchased by the blood of Christ. And the king himself has asked that we extend forgiveness to others as he has so graciously given it to us. Let the hearer understand. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness available to us in Christ Jesus. We ask that your spirit would stir us up to the good deed of forgiveness as often as we have the opportunity to do so. Help us to be quick to release other people of what we have against them, not out of misguided self-righteousness or pietism, but out of a love for you and a gratitude for what Jesus has done for us. May we be salt and light in a world dying and decaying, a society in desperate need of forgiveness and mercy. We ask these things for the glory of the King who taught us to pray.